Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. Now, there are moments when markets seem to be fixated on one topic, and I would argue that we were at one of those moments with inflation. Does the pickup in inflation spell the end of 30 years of deflation brought about by debt, globalization, technology, and demography? Is it structural or is it cyclical? Now, these are important questions for all investors, of course, crucially important for multi-asset investors like my guest today, who can allocate dynamically between bonds, equities, cash, and alternatives. His name is James Mee. He's the fund manager of the Multi-Asset Income Fund at Waverton. He also sits on our asset allocation committee. He is an investment heavyweight and frighteningly young. We discuss the benefits of multi-asset portfolios, his positioning, Um, how he thinks about edging tail risk events and geopolitics. But we start with the topic du jour, that is, of course, inflation. So without further ado, this is the Why Invest podcast. James Mee, welcome to the podcast. James, we're going to be talking about multi-assets. But before we do, let's set the scene. Where do you sit on the inflation-deflation debate? And if we do start to see inflation return. Is it going to be structural or cyclical? Hi, Doug, and thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I think you framed it perfectly, this sort of cyclical structural divide. I'd say that we already are seeing inflation. You know, it's very much in the financial press at the moment. It's in the popular press at the moment. Uh, It's garnering a lot of attention. Yesterday, we had the, the inflation print in the US, which was 5%. That's the highest print we've had since 2008, in fact. It was the peak of inflation before the global financial crisis. You'd have to go back to 1991 to see inflation that high again. And in fact, it was on the way down in 1991. You'd have to go further back uh, even than that. It's the same for core inflation. So if you exclude food and energy, which they do on the basis that they tend to be the most cyclical parts of the inflation index, even that's a historic or relatively historic high, recent high, 3.8%. You'd have to go back to 1992. Core PCE, which is the uh, the Fed's favoured indicator, the US Central Bank, that's at 3.2. Again, you'd have to go back to 1992. So I'd argue that we're already seeing inflation. Part of the reason it's capturing so much attention at the moment is because some of the moves on a year-on-year basis uh, in the subcomponents are actually pretty extraordinary if you you look at them when you drill down. So the cost to rent a car or a truck has gone up 110%. Over the course of one year, airline fares are up 25%. Uh, transportation more generally is up 20%. Energy, so if you go to fill up your, your car at the gas station in the US, that's up 55%. So these are very, very real costs to the consumer. It's pretty broad. The consumer will definitely be feeling that. Um, so it makes sense this in the financial press. When we think about things, we try to put things in something of a, a, a macroeconomic framework. It's akin to a bottom-up fundamental equity research thesis but we think about things from a, from a framework perspective. So really, as you say, this is a bit of a battle between the secular or structural or the long-term disinflationary forces that we've seen very much compound over the last 40 years versus some of the shorter-term, more cyclical inflationary forces, which we'll come on to discuss, I imagine, in, in some detail. Well, just elaborate on the, on the, the long-term disinflationary forces, yeah, okay. structural forces at play. So there have been a whole confluence of factors that have driven inflation and interest rates down over the last 30 or 40 years, going back to the early to mid-1980s. 
three key ones for us are debt demographics and digitalization. Bit of a mouthful. Now, debt itself can be inflationary or disinflationary as a force. It very much depends what your starting point is. As things stand today, US government debt is over 100% of GDP. I think it's 105% of GDP. The Congressional Budget Office, which is a, a nonpartisan entity in the US, forecasts debt to GDP, government debt to GDP in the US to hit 200% by 2040. Uh, to the extent that when you take on debt, you are effectively borrowing from the future, you are going to have to pay interest on that debt and you're going to have to pay that debt back at some point in time. It will impinge your ability to spend capital today, effectively, because you're paying down that debt. So we think that that's a disinflationary force, certainly once you get above a certain point. Uh, in fact, Reinhard Rogoff, 2009-2010, wrote about the effects of debt, government debt on growth. They said that on um, GDP growth, and they said that above 90%, it will impinge your ability to grow. Now, it was largely criticised uh, for various reasons, how we get into, but we think that the analysis stands, uh, and we think that it relates also to the, the impact on prices and the impact on, on inflation. The second was demographics. We, today, we have a very, very much top-heavy demographic. So most of the developed markets, in fact, even in China, the working age population peaked last year. And retirees tend to spend less in absolute terms uh, than those still working. So the demographic profile isn't, isn't great from a developed market perspective, certainly. And then digitalization, this is really a secular force of sort of constantly improving technology, impacting prices and declining prices for digitalized goods and increasingly digitalized services as well. There are a couple of other secular forces which are, it's less obvious that they're still a disinflationary force. So globalization is one of them. Globalization has been a big disinflationary force. We've been exporting labor, exporting capital, predominantly from the West to the East. So, and, and a lot of that's landed in China. Big question as to whether that's the case anymore. Certainly if we're retrenching with something of a nationalistic impulse, which is what we've seen under Trump, and not totally disregarded by Biden, for example, that certainly could turn. Tax is one. We've had corporate tax rates decline over the last 40 years. So in the US, for example, they were 7% of GDP in 1940s. They've declined to 1.1% in 2019 to 20. So that's a huge disinflationary force. It reduces cost to companies. They then pass these on to the consumer. And again, that might be changing. So we've seen the proposal from Janet Yellen, Treasury Secretary in the US, to have a, a global minimum tax rate. And we think that really that's pushing on an open door. That also speaks to a larger point about big government. Perhaps we can come back to that. And the final is just that decline in interest rates or cost of capital. I'm sure we'll come on to that as well. But there is a reflexive relationship between the cost of money, interest rates, cost of capital, and that of inflation. So they're the big secular forces that are predominantly still disinflationary, but there are a few question marks. So if you had to fall on one side of the fence, I think we've established that inflation has already returned. Do you think it's coming back in a structural way? You'd need some of those secular forces to change fundamentally for it to come back in a structural way. That's our view. What we're seeing at the moment is, is very strong cyclical upward pressure on prices. So mm -hmm. strong commodity prices, freight, so whether you're shipping or moving things around on rail or on road, you've seen a semiconductor shortage that's impacted the availability of new cars. So you've seen secondhand cars trading at twice as expensive this year than they were last year. And there's an excess demand for labor in areas in freight and trucking and leisure and hospitality, which we haven't seen for a very long time. Where do we come out in the battle? I think 
on a 12 to 18 month view, we think that the inflationary pressures abate. And we think actually that that's driven by cyclical forces. So we implicitly, what we're saying there is the structural forces remain, the cyclical forces sort of fade away. But we think that demand for goods specifically will begin to slow towards the end of this year. We're already seeing that to some extent. It's what's happening actually is demand for services, travel, going out and, and eating, going for drinks is, is rising more. And we think we're in a second phase of this post-COVID opening up period. We think that production where it can will rise to meet demand. We think that the bottlenecks will actually ease as a result. It's actually not the case at the moment, but um, we think as we move through the end of this year and into next year, we will see that. Very importantly, though, you need wages to rise probably on a structural basis to affect the psychology of the consumer. Mm -hmm. What we have at the moment is the aggregate labor supply is actually very, very high still. So we've got 9 million people unemployed in the US. That's three and a half million more than was the case in 2019. As we go through this year and get further and further away from the Q1 2020 COVID crisis in the markets, that is, the pace of re-employment is actually slowing. The number of permanently unemployed as a proportion of the total is rising. That's versus the temporary unemployed. So we think that we could come into the end of this year where you come to an end of a period of something of a sugar rush in terms of spending. People have surplus savings. They haven't been allowed to go out and spend any money that they've managed to save. Most people have managed to save quite a lot of money. So there's been a bit of a sugar rush. And we think that as we get to the end of that sugar rush period, you could well see an excess supply of labor just as demand is slowing. So we think that it probably will be transitory. That's the framework that we have today. And of course, we're, you know, we're looking to where we could be wrong. So thinking about that as the backdrop, how are you positioning your portfolio against that framework, number one? And number two, against a backdrop of low or indeed negative interest rates, what are you looking to do in the bond part of your multi-asset portfolios at the moment? Yeah. So as a multi-asset investor, I mean, it's important to highlight what we mean by that. So uh, you will invest in the traditional asset classes, equities, bonds, cash. Uh, that's evolved somewhat to take account of you know, non-traditional, what we would term as alternative strategies as well. And we'll also use hedging. So perhaps we can we can go through those. How are we positioned from a multi-asset perspective? We're substantially invested in equities, generally in a low and rising inflationary environment. This tends to be very good for equities in aggregate in general. Now, we don't invest in the market. We invest in individual securities. But you know, at an asset allocation level, we certainly expect low and rising inflation to be something of a Goldilocks environment. Worth saying that high and rising inflation, so when we say high, we actually mean 5% and rising. This is not so good for equities. It's actually contractory from a PE perspective. So we'll start to impact the multiple that, that the market will put on the company's shares. Nonetheless, we, we remain invested in equities and substantially so. At an asset allocation level within equities, we have a preference for what we term as opening up names. So those companies that are really set to benefit from sort of going through this second phase of this uh, post-COVID opening up. So, you know, we're looking at away from goods, more towards services. We're thinking travel and leisure. We're thinking, uh, you know, derivatives thereof. So Coca-Cola, for example, mm. uh, generates a substantial portion of their revenue from on-premises demand that we haven't had on-premises demand because everyone's been cooped up. Now there is. Same thing with Asahi, for example, Heineken. Similarly, in the US, we're invested in Amex, we're invested in Visa. You know, we think beneficiaries of a structural trend away from cash, but also cyclically people returning to 
pre-pandemic spending habits, and in particular, a return to travel, which we think actually will be a multi-year trend. And again, within equities, we're looking at the, you know, in the sort of commodity space. So we own Rio Tinto, we own some shares in, in Royal Dutch Shell as well, beneficiaries of this pro-cyclical bent. Within the fixed income space, we're, we're short duration. So you don't want to be carrying a lot of duration risk going into an inflationary environment. We're certainly not. And to the extent that we can hedge or trade inflation specifically, about this time last year, we, we went long in a small position, inflationary swaps. So we took the view that, that the market was really mispricing the risk of inflation. We didn't think inflation needed to be, or indeed was going to be 5%, but we took the view that 0.8% on a five-year view was, was structurally too low. So we bought inflation swaps and we still own curve steepness. So we can benefit to the extent that inflation pushes up the long end of the yield curve while the front end's pinned by the Federal Reserve. Pausing on bonds there for the moment, are you looking to generate real returns from the bond components of your, your multi-asset portfolios? So on bonds specifically, we, our view is the outlook for traditional fixed income is severely challenged. Many of those secular forces we've already discussed, sort of pushing inflation downwards, have also led yields down. We've gone in, in the gilt market, for example, from I think 13% yields in mid-80s down to zero. Uh, over 30 or 45 years, and, and some of these secular forces might well be shifting. Even if they don't shift, the incredibly low nominal returns you can get from bonds at this level are just not attractive to us from an investment perspective. And Japan's a very good example of, of what it looks like. They're sort of 10 or 20 years ahead of the Western world in this regard. At the same time, risk in bonds has risen. So again, if we look at the gilt market, the gilt index back in the mid-1980s was five years. So for 1% move in interest rates, you would lose uh, 5% of your capital. That's gone from 5 to 13. So where we're at today in, in the UK gilt market, for example, is for a 1% move in interest rates, it will take you 26 years in income to recoup your lost capital. You're getting a, a very low return. You're taking on considerably more risk in order to do so. And the other point on risk is that a lot of people own bonds, particularly in a traditional balanced, I call it 60-40 portfolio, not because they want to generate a return, but because they want to use them as a hedge in the instance that the equity market declines or suffers any bout of volatility. And what we've been noting more recently is that relationship, that historically negative correlation, negative relationship between equities and bonds has become somewhat unstable. So we don't think that you can actually rely on government bonds to be your hedge at all times allocation. And so to that end, you know, we do invest in alternatives and, and have a history of investing in alternatives, partly for that reason. And so how do you think about the alternatives universe? And again, what are you trying to do in, in the alternative space, which is, you know, a space that has grown hugely over the last 10 years, probably as a result of some of the factors that you've been talking about, low and indeed negative interest rates? So alternatives you know as a designation we think is an unhelpful one we think it covers sort of myriad different strategies and all manner of sins we try to disaggregate the alternatives universe so what we talk about when we're talking about alternatives specifically is breaking it into real assets and absolute return so real assets are we describe them as long only return seeking alternatives we're looking to generate an equity like return two-thirds the volatility of equities have a very long time horizon, so eight plus years, a similar time horizon that we have with equities. Uh, but what we're looking for from these strategies is to run a low beta to the equity market, low fixed income duration, for example, and so therefore diversify 
the rest of your book. And then with an absolute return, what we're looking to do is generate a positive absolute return on a 12-month rolling basis. We're looking to protect capital in periods of acute market stress, such as uh, we saw in Q1 last year. And on top of those two, we also hedge. So we will look to protect you know, what we term the left tail or the periods of most acute market stress uh, and sort of smooth that downside profile. And if we can protect on the downside and keep up on the upside, really that will enable us to compound returns for investors over time. In terms of the changing landscape, what's going on in private markets is sort of slightly beyond our remit. Certainly there is or has been a huge amount of quantitative easing in addition of pumping of liquidity into the system. And it was actually an express goal of quantitative easing in, in the first few rounds in post-global financial crisis to get investors to transition from, for example, government bonds into equities and then further down into, you know, pick up some illiquidity premia. We're actually seeing a lot of private capital entering the alternative space in particular. So in the UK, for example, you're seeing overseas private capital come in and buy up vast swathes of student property. You're seeing them investing in renewable power in particular in Europe, the UK, and now latterly in the US. And we're also seeing, this is a slightly to the side, but in answering the question, some signs of froth and excess in the retail space. So GameStop saga, NFTs, you've seen $15,000 spent on an art quote-unquote concept. It is literally a concept. They're buying thin air, buying an idea. Generally, this doesn't happen unless money is cheap and or abundant. So this, this could be an indirect effect of quantitative easing. It's interesting. It does remind me of the, well, it's like a hark back to the South Sea bubble. James, going back to equities, and equities are often described as productive assets, but I think you could argue that equities are adaptable assets where you know the management in charge of companies adapt to different market and economic environments. Now, if that's the case, and against quite a sort of disruptive political and economic backdrop, shouldn't we just have all of our money in equities rather than trying to be too clever in the multi-asset space? I agree with you. Um, they are adaptive. They can be productive, but it's not always the case. To be productive, really, you need to generate a return in excess of your cost of capital. Many, many companies are not doing that, even with cost of capital as low as it is. And there is something of zombification of the equity market. Again, one of the indirect consequences of ultra-loose monetary policy. Company management clearly can adapt. Some do so faster than others. It depends on the level of autonomy of that management. It depends on the level of bureaucracy. But the macroeconomic environment will impact the way that these companies trade. Inflation of 5% and rising is, is generally price earnings contractual, as I've already said. If one were to make a call between equities versus bonds, absolutely, it's a no-brainer. One would want to own equities, provided your time horizon is sufficiently long. Uh, but there is something to be said for diversifying the portfolio. You want to generally smooth that profile, particularly on the downside. If you think about it from an opportunity cost perspective, the opportunity cost of the dollar to you in Q1 2020, when the market is 50% below where it is today, is substantially higher than the opportunity cost of that dollar today. You want to have the dollar in your pocket 12 months ago ahead of a 50% retracement and, and setting of new highs. And that is part of what we're doing as multi-asset investors, particularly with the absolute return, particularly with the hedging strategies in order to be liquidity providers when the market is desperately seeking liquidity so that you can pick up some, some great bargains. And going back to your point on correlations, what the rising correlations between equities and bonds 
mean for the multi-asset space more broadly? And have you seen you know increasing correlations across the board, or does it really apply to fixed income and equities? So most notably between government bonds and the national equity markets, so take the S&P 500 and, and US treasuries, the reason it's most notable is there are a lot of strategies that are either explicitly or implicitly relying on this negative relationship to generate their very strong risk-adjusted returns. They take you know, 40 years of historic trading data, they look at the correlations, they look at the relationship, and they build a strategy based on that. And we think that that is fundamentally flawed if you take the view that the next 40 years doesn't look like the last 40 years. The impact it'll have or ought to have on multi-asset investing generally is if you see that relationship trend positively on a consistent basis, you'll probably see a reduction in the amount that's owned in fixed income. And that will either be shifted into, particularly in an inflationary environment, equities or alternatives. And within the alternatives universe, we think it's most likely that that will find its way into the real asset space. James, you've been running the multi-asset income fund Waverton for over five years now. Do you think that you've had to change your skill set or has your skill set been updated over the last five years, which let's face it, have been a pretty volatile five years to be managing money? So I don't think the, the skill set's changed specifically. The philosophy remains the same. The process remains exactly the same. We still manage money on a, uh, you know, a, a global, direct, bottom-up basis, uh, and we still have a top-down macroeconomic framework that we operate within. Inevitably, we're constantly developing and evolving our understanding of the market, the relationship between economics, politics, policy, psychology, so on and so forth. We don't profess to be able to forecast. We think it's unimaginably complex the global environment within which we live and within which we invest. But we do use that framework and we're trying to evolve that all the time. But I don't think fundamentally investing has changed over the last five, six years. And turning to geopolitics, geopolitical risks have been rising. I mean, you can look around the globe, US-China over Taiwan, US-Russia over the Ukraine, maybe even China's creeping dominance in the South China Sea. How do you think about geopolitical risks and how do you price in your mind, geopolitical risks? So they are very real risks, without question, but a slightly flippant response might be, "'Twas ever thus. You know, overt geopolitical risk has always, always been there. Arguably, it's lower today than it has been or than it was for most of the last century. I think the big question out there, which people have been grappling with for decades now, and certainly a lot's been written on it, is how the US versus China battle, if you can call it that. At the moment, it's a soft power battle. Does it turn into a hard power battle? Question. But how that battle will play out. And will it fall into this thing called Thucydides trap? Is a military general writing the Peloponnesian War? I'm glad you still... pronounced that rather than I had to. Yeah, I think it's Thucydides. <laughs> I think that's right. That I think, right. Where he said that it was inevitable, quote unquote, that we would have total war, all encompassing war, when a rising power challenges the status of a declining power. So are we going to see that in the US versus China situation or not? That has historically been the case as an author called or historian called Allison who's written about this. But what I would say is that the last great example was actually the decline of Great Britain and the rise of the US, and that didn't result uh, in total war. So geopolitical risks are constant. Generally, in my relatively short experience, they don't tend to dominate the market and they don't tend to dominate company, fundamental company performance. 
Uh, nonetheless, obviously, we try to stay in touch with what's going on. And there are certainly some specific relationships which can affect specific asset classes. So, you know, a topical example at the moment would be the relationship between the US and Iran coming back to the table on the nuclear deal that the JCPOA, I think, was signed probably over a decade ago now. So we stay on top of that from, you know, because it's relevant to markets and relevant to what we do, uh, but also because it's fascinating. But I come back to the point on complexity to forecast an outcome of a particular geopolitical relationship probably would be folly. So it's just part of that framework that I've mentioned. And well, let's um, take another example. You mentioned Iran, but let's let's take Taiwan as an example. How does the rising geopolitical tension across the Taiwanese Strait feed into the sort of investment process and the way you think about stocks in that area? In terms of how it feeds into the process specifically, from a top-down perspective, clearly that's something that's discussed at the asset allocation level by the Asset Allocation Committee. So we are constantly monitoring um, the most significant geopolitical risk and thinking about how, uh, if they were to flare up, it would affect key asset prices. From a bottom-up perspective, which is perhaps more pertinent considering what we actually own is securities in companies or or share in in a company. Um, If you take TSMC, for example, the way we think about it, there, there are two ways you can factor it into your analysis. The first and simplest, arguably, is just to increase the discount rate or increase that cost of capital, reduces the future cash flows, reduces the or the value of the future cash flows and reduces the value of the company. And you can add a political risk premium to that. Arguably, a better way would be to forecast scenarios in terms of what the cash flows might be going forward under two different scenarios, probability weight them and then discount them back on a, on a standard discount rate basis. Ultimately, as I say, again, it comes back to complexity. It is impossible to put a number to this. To some extent, it comes down to the analyst and to the fund manager uh, perspective. Do we think it's more likely than not um, that we're going to go into this environment? In terms of from a multi-asset perspective and, and coming back to how do you price it, that's, that's part of the answer. The other part is because it is so complex and because it, these things tend to be very low probability but very high impact events, What we want to do is really hedge that left tail. We want to hedge that very low probability risk of something like this happen. And so to that end, we will usually hedge those systemic risks. So we use an internally managed protection strategy. We use credit put options. We might take put options on the S&P 500, for example. At the moment, we own a call option on on the US 30-year government bond which would very likely rally in the situation in any of the scenarios that, that have been described above. And on occasion, we will also hedge idiosyncratic risks. So, you know, we've spoken a lot about inflation already, but where we think inflation might be rising materially or might be mispriced, we will specifically hedge that risk uh, by taking swaps or, or, or curve steepeners or whatever it might be. Final question, James, what advice would you give to some of our, our younger audience who are maybe coming out of university, their analysts, their associates? who are looking um, to pursue a career running multi-asset portfolios like you, what skills do you think they need to develop? The best piece of advice I could give would be read everything about uh, investing you can possibly get your hands on, stay up to date with what's going on in the world. One of the best things about the job or the best thing about the job is that everything is relevant and that makes it all the more fascinating uh, and it's relevant to, to how you invest and what you're investing in. So read everything would be the first piece of advice. The second would be try to understand a bit about behavioral psychology. It's been a growing part of 
investment analysis over the past decade or more. And I think it is absolutely critical to understand certainly psychology of crowds if you're looking at it from a top-down macro perspective, but also understanding individual psychology. At the end of the day, every decision within the companies that you're investing in is made by human. They're seeing the same data that you're seeing. They have the same pressures that you have. So try to understand behavioral psychology and read everything. Read and psychology. I like this. Um, And actually, that was my penultimate question. My final question is on crypto. Can you see a scenario where um, you would start to see any crypto assets entering the, your multi-asset portfolios? It's not on the immediate horizon in terms of the multi-asset funds that I run. My personal view on this space is uh, it's unproven. Again, it's low probability, high impact, but to the upside. So uh, the way I view it is you really need to think of this as an option type payoff. So don't invest more than you would be willing to lose on it, but you could benefit exponentially if a particular blockchain or a particular cryptocurrency gains favor. That's very, very clear. James Me, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Doug. Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week, James Me fund manager of the multi-asset income fund now if you have any questions about the fund or the strategy do get in touch at waverton.co.uk and if you've enjoyed the show or indeed the series why not like it and subscribe to it and we'd really appreciate it if you told your friends and colleagues the information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.